Welcome to A New Republic, an oral history of the Indian Constitution. Many thanks for tuning into this, the inaugural episode of A New Republic. Before I plunge into the fascinating story of the Indian Constitution, I'd like to tell you a few things about who I am and why I'm doing this. My name is Sidin Vadukut. I'm an author, journalist, columnist and editor with one of India's uh, major business newspapers. I also contribute to several newspapers and websites all over the world. The one thing I'm not is an expert on Indian history or Indian constitution. Therefore, if you'd like to read an expert take, I ask you to stop right now. Instead of listening to me, you should be picking up one of several books written by experts on the constitution. For instance, I highly recommend the books written by Granville Austin. Though I don't think anyone else has produced a podcast on this topic yet, so I kind of have a monopoly on this platform. However, I will be referring to many of these well-regarded books and sources in the course of this series. My show notes accompanying each recording, which I will publish online, will give you details of all books, hyperlinks and other references used to produce that show. What I can promise you is that I will do my best to report the story as it took place. Mind you, I am fully expecting to make mistakes, but I do hope there will be errors in interpretation and not errors in reporting. In any case, throughout the series, if you spot any errors, do leave a comment. This is as much a journey of discovery for me as I hope it will be for you. The next thing I'd like to briefly talk about is my motives for producing this series. Over the last couple of years, I've spent many hours researching elements of Indian history. Most of this work has been for my newspaper articles or for one of my book projects. Along the way, I began to read about the Indian constitution. One source of inspiration for this new curiosity was the recent emergence of the anti-corruption movement in India, especially the Lokpal movement. At the time this movement began, there was much discussion within the media and outside about the constitutionality of the Lokpal. I'd never heard this word, constitutionality, being used so widely before. So I began to read and very soon I was hooked. Recently, I spoke about this new fascination of mine with a prominent historian and author. We both agreed that the Constitution of India represents the high watermark of enlightened, liberal and multi-party politics in India. It is one of independent India's greatest achievements. The fact that a young nation drew up such a document and has stuck with it for so long are matters that every Indian citizen should be proud about. I hope through this podcast to tell you the story of how this document came about. I hope to impart to you some of my own personal fascination with it. And I hope that both you the listener and I the producer will come out of this better informed. Do remember this is a story of not just the events, the politics and the laws themselves but also of the personalities involved. Some of them were true visionaries and their shadow looms over India today for better or for worse. But also the story of the document is in many ways the story of India itself. It is how India was, how India became and for all practical purposes it is how India will be. I hope you will enjoy listening to this. A New Republic, an oral history of the Indian Constitution. Part 1: Origins. Now the proper Indian schoolboy way of opening this first episode would be with the Oxford English Dictionary's definition of the word constitution. That would be followed by a somewhat obscure quotation about the Indian constitution made by a famous person, usually Mahatma Gandhi, Jawaharlal Nehru, Bernard Shaw, 
or that old favorite Oscar Wilde. I'm going to avoid the temptation and instead start with a little bit of architecture. One of London's most iconic landmarks is Big Ben, or to use its official name, Elizabeth Tower. The 96-meter-tall tower is situated at the northern end of the Palace of Westminster. This palace, of course, is the complex of buildings that houses the British Parliament. Big Ben is by far the best known of the palace's three towers. But in fact, it is neither the largest nor the tallest. Those honours go to the Victoria Tower at the southwest corner of the palace. Victoria Tower is not, is not only two and a half metres taller than Big Ben, but it also contains things far more valuable than an old, loud, giant clock. When Victoria Tower was completed in 1855, it was the tallest secular structure in the world. And it was specifically designed to be the official repository of all the books and documents in the parliamentary archives. One of the most important rooms in this tower, and one that is still used to this day, is the Act Room. This is the room on the first floor of the tower where every single Act of Parliament passed since 1497 is preserved. And it is in this room that we can find, if we ever manage to get in, original copies of documents that paved the way for the Indian Constitution. For the Constitution was not a document born out of a vacuum. Indeed, the Indian Constitution, you could say, has a pedigree that goes back over a century and a half. In this episode, I'd like to briefly talk about four important acts of the British Parliament that preceded the Indian Constitution and, to varying degrees, influenced it. These acts are called, with typical British flair, the Government of India Act of 1858, the Government of India Act of 1909, and the Government of India Act of 1919, and finally the Government of India Act of 1935. The last one, of course, being the most important one. But we start with the first. The year 1857 was one that shook the British Empire. It all started in Barakpur, near Calcutta. On 29 March 1857, Mangal Pandey, a 29-year-old sepoy in the 34th Bengal Native Infantry, declared a rebellion. Eventually, Pandey tried to fire his gun at a British officer and missed. A later attempt by Pandey to commit suicide also failed. On 8th April, Pandey was hanged and his regiment disbanded. In the weeks to follow, these disgruntled soldiers, it is believed, fueled growing unrest among the civilian and military population. And then suddenly, all of India was on fire. When I was in school, the events that followed Mangal Pandey's rebellion was called the Sepoy Mutiny or the Revolt of 1857. More recently, it has been called the First War of Independence. Whatever be the nomenclature you choose, the events had a profound impact on India's history. I do not want to dwell on this too much. That is material for another more controversial podcast. For instance, I have read studies that suggest the current state of urban poverty among Muslims in India can be traced back to their persona non grata status amongst British administrators after the rebellion. Also, there is evidence to suggest that accounts of the brutality of the fighting, both real and exaggerated, helped to permanently change the way people back in Britain thought of their colonial subjects. But for the purposes of this podcast, let us limit ourselves to the legislative impacts. In 1858, after peace was more or less restored, the British government decided to permanently take over administration from the East India Company. This required the passing of a new act that formalized this takeover. This act, the Government of India Act of 1858, was passed on the 2nd of August of that year. Through this piece of legislation, all possessions of the East India Company passed into the hands of the Crown. It was decided to appoint a Governor-General and to raise a new Indian civil service. The passing of this act marks the onset of what has been called the British Raj, a period of administration directly overseen by the British Parliament 
that would last for 90 years until August 1947. This also meant that all laws pertaining to India would now be passed at Westminster. Between 1858 and 1947, the British Parliament passed a total of 196 local, private and public acts regarding India and Indian matters. This would become a growing corpus of ever more complicated legislation that would later help India's own lawmakers to drop their constitution. At this point, I will speed up the story a little to give you the broadest possible outline of the next three Government of India Acts. This is not because they are unimportant, far from it. What I would like to do is give you a brief outline now and then dedicate one episode each to each of those acts later. This might seem unnecessary and you may feel a little impatient to get to 1947. But the evolution of these acts and how they were received in Britain and India is not only quite interesting but also important in terms of building context. Like I said before, the constitution was not born out of ether. It was a product of a complicated social, political and economic context. I promise you I will try not to bore you though. So with that disclaimer out of the way, onwards we go. The Indian Councils Act of 1909, often called the Government of India Act of 1909, was the first to allow the elections of Indians into various legislative bodies of the British Raj. Though it must be kept in mind, these elections were nothing like those prevalent in India today or even in the UK in the early 20th century. The Act only allowed certain classes of Indians to vote, and even then, the people who actually won elections had, had no real actual power. But even these concessions were made grudgingly. Lord Curzon, a member of parliament and a previous governor-general of India himself, was afraid that these new, legis these new legislative councils with Indians might, God forbid, become parliamentary bodies in miniature. But more about Curzon and the act in a future episode. Suffice to say that the Indian Councils Act of 1909 first introduced the idea of elected representatives from amongst the natives. What then follows is a series of reforms spaced by about 10 years each where British administrators tried to balance Indian ambitions of self-administration with their own fears. And these fears, we shall see in due course, were not just that of ceding control of their greatest colony. There was more nuance. Anyway, thus the Indian Councils Act of 1909 was followed by the Government of India Act of 1919. Now, if the Act of 1909 introduced elections, the Act of 1919 introduced self-governing institutions and it introduced a bifurcation of responsibilities between elected members and nominated councillors. This act was based on a series of reforms suggested in 1918 called the Montague Chelmsford Reforms. However, these proved to be less than acceptable to many Indians. By this point in time, Indian political ambitions had evolved. The conclusion of the First World War, American President Woodrow Wilson's support for the idea of self-determination, and the arrival on the scene of one Mr. Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, had all made Indian politicians and leaders bolder. Protest against these reforms followed all over India. One such protest ended in the Jallianwala Bagh massacre in April 1919. Still, the Government of India Act of 1919 was passed in the December of that year with a provision for review in 1929. And then, perfectly on schedule, in 1928, the Simon Commission was sent to India to consider further constitutional reforms. Members of the Commission, including future British Prime Minister Clement Attlee, arrived in Bombay on the 3rd of February to be welcomed by a nation on the boil. Now, going through the Simon Commission's suggested reforms, one can begin to see the faint outlines of an Indian constitution, like a ship slowly appearing through dense mist. Here we first see, for instance, the suggestion of a federal structure. 
The greatest impact of the Simon Commission, perhaps, was the backlash it generated and the subsequent decision of the British government to involve Indian leaders in constitutional reforms. What followed were a series of roundtable talks between November 1930 and December 1932. These talks would eventually culminate in the Government of India Act of 1935. Of all the documents we have spoken about so far, this Act of 1935 is the one that has had the most obvious legacy. We will spend quite some time later in the series talking about the genesis and the legacy of this document. Many concepts in this Act were later adopted and written into the Indian Constitution. The Act also had, for instance, geographical implications. It spun off Burma into a separate entity and split Bihar and Orissa. But more about this crucial part of our history later. With that, we come to the end of this episode. Next time, we will talk about the Government of India Act of 1858 and the beginnings of constitutional reforms in India. See you then.